Well, good morning to you. Good to see you. I hope all of you had a very Merry Christmas and a happy time together. We did. We had uh, all 20, all but one of our children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren uh, there. Our, one of our grandsons is a nurse, and he had to uh, work, but uh, we had a wonderful time. Great time of the year, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but you may feel like one fellow I heard say he is, his favorite lights at Christmas time were tail lights. <laughs> I have to admit, uh, yesterday was kind of a quiet uh, part of the day, uh, uh, but we, we have a wonderful time with our family. I hope you did too. I want to ask you to turn to Isaiah 43, and I'm going to be looking at verses 16 through 21. I, I want to ask of you two things today. Uh, first of all, I want to ask you to listen just as an individual, just as an individual person, and ask what, what is God saying to me personally through this truth that we're going to be examining today. But then I want to ask you to, on the other ear, on the other side, I would like for you to listen not just as an individual, but as a church member, as, this, as a part of this body that you call Kirby Woods Baptist Church. Because I believe there's a truth here that's applicable both as individual believer priest, which we all are who know the Lord Jesus, but it is also a corporate message. There's a word here for the church corporately. And I hope it'll be an encouraging word to you this morning. But in Isaiah chapter 43, the immediate context is the imminent invasion and captivity of the southern kingdom of Judah. In 586, uh, the the last of three phases of transferring these prisoners of war that thousand miles from Israel to Babylon was taking place. And in this 586 invasion, they left nothing but devastation. The temple was destroyed, the walls were destroyed, everything was just about destroyed in that invasion. And Isaiah has been warning them of this imminent captivity and, uh, but, but he gives them a promise in the midst of that. And I want you to hear that promise today. I, I would call this message the dreadful prospect of missing his best. If you give the sermon a title, it'd be the dreadful prospect of missing God's best. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 16, thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea. Now see if you can figure out what particular event this next verse, couple of verses is talking about. He makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters who brings forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together they shall not rise. They are extinguished, 
They are quenched like a wick. Did you get it? You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the exodus from Egypt. When God opened a way through the waters and they went through on dry land. It is this next sentence that literally blows me away. He says, do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now, it shall spring forth, shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field will honor me and the jackals and the ostriches because I give water in the desert, in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to drink, to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people have I formed for myself they shall declare my praise. Now, would you look up at the, phrase, at the verse 19 and underline it, at least in your mind, if not in your Bible. Behold, I will do a new thing. I wonder if you, like me, remember taking your children to the fair uh, whenever they were younger and uh, they just had to have one of those little glow-in-the-dark green things. You remember that? They just glow in the dark. And, and uh, they get those things with a lot of excitement. But, but what happens before you get home? <laughs> the glow goes, doesn't it? Uh, the glory's gone. The green is no longer green. It just fades away. Well, you know, that not only happens to little green things you buy at the fair, but it happens in people's lives. It happens in businesses, businesses that were thriving. You know, I, I remember being in Jackson, Mississippi, and for years I went to the Mississippi Baptist Convention, and we, we always ate at Shoney's, you know, out there north of Jackson. And I remember driving by and seeing Shoney's boarded up, and I just wanted to cry. The glory was gone. It not only happens it, to them, it happens to sports teams. <laughs> when the glory is gone, you know, you win a championship one next year and then nobody, uh, you know, and everybody expects it again and it doesn't happen. The glory is gone. The green thing has faded away. It happens in marriages. I've counseled so many people, and when they come in for their pre-marriage counseling, man, you can't, you can't get a sleeve of paper in between them. They're sitting right next to each other, you know. They, they're gazing into each other's eyes, and, you know, they, they're just goofy in their answers, you know. And, just, uh, and, and you, just, you just think, well, bless your heart. And then they come in about two years later, and they're working through some problems, and, you know, there's six feet between them and they won't make eye contact you know the green is gone the glory is gone it happens with churches 
Actually, it happened in the church at Ephesus. Now, let, me, let me just tell you, let me just read for you. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. <clears throat> he said, John said, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those things that are evil. And you have tested those who say they're apostles and are not and have found them liars. You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have and have not become weary. Man, I want to go join that church. Don't you? What a great church. I mean, they're so hot doctrinally that the heresy won't even live in there, you know? But notice what he says. The last words, nevertheless. Doesn't that word always kind of scare you? Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. The glory is gone. The glory is faded away. The, the green stuff is no longer glowing. It's just an old faded stick of plastic. It happens not only with churches that used to be great lighthouses for the gospel. It happens that the glory can fade. It happens to individuals. It happened to Moses. L listen to this text. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. You know, we normally think of that text where when Moses came down from the mountain, he put a, a, a sack over his head so that the people wouldn't be blinded by the glory that shone from his face. But that's only partially true. You see, there's another reason why Moses wore that sack. It wasn't just so you wouldn't be blown away by the glory of the shining of his face, but it was so you wouldn't see the fading away of that glory. It happens to churches and it happens to individuals who used to be on fire for God, who loved the Lord and walked with the Lord and shared their faith and prayed every day and were in the Word of God and were faithful to church and all of a sudden the green is gone and they're dull and the glory has faded. For 53 years. I've been trying to get back to Barracks 410 on the island of Okinawa at Koza Air Force Base. For 53 years, I have desired not to go back to that barracks physically, but to go back there spiritually. The greatest sovereign, powerful, movement of revival that I have ever witnessed in my life. And I'm 75 years old as of this past Christmas Eve. I've never witnessed anything to compare with the supernatural, sovereign, soul-saving, life-changing, sin-killing, Revival that sat down on two barracks on the island of Okinawa. 
Out of that revival, guys were sent all over the world to become pastors and missionaries and laymen who were on fire for God. I've never seen anything like it. My, my room, my barracks room became a spiritual OB ward where men were being born again so often. I was 23 years old, but I was considered the patriarch of that revival because these were young airmen. Many of them had not been raised in Christian homes, but Christ changed their life. And I've been wanting to see that happen for 53 years. But you know, God's begin, began to teach me something. And I want to share with you the lesson he's teaching me. I say is teaching rather than has taught. And that is this. I've been looking in the wrong direction. You see, God is showing me that, that, that I don't need to look back to the first exodus. Using the context here. I need to get my eyes off of that deliverance out of Egypt through the Red Sea, miraculous intervention of God. God did that, yes, and we applaud him and we praise God for it. But that's not the end all be all. He said, I've got something new for you. It is a new exodus. He said, I brought you out of Egypt through the water into the land of promise. He said, now I'm going to bring you out of Babylon out of captivity, through the desert, and back to Israel. I'm going to make for you rivers in the desert. Isn't that a great thought? Rivers in the desert. You see, that first exodus, the problem was too much water. <laughs> and God had to open a way through the waters to get them through. That was the first exodus. But he says, the second exodus, the problem is too little water. All you got is a thousand miles of desert. And he said, where I, 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 I split the waters in the first exodus, I put rivers in the desert in the second exodus. And he said, he said to them, stop thinking about the first exodus and start thinking about the second exodus. Now, folks, here's the problem. We believers as a group don't have the best track record in the world of dealing with new things. Can I have an amen on that? I mean, we, don't, we just don't always handle change well. Now, notice what the Lord says. He says here, verse 18, do not remember the former things. What's he talking about? That's jaw-dropping, folks. You see, the greatest the greatest event in the life and history of Israel was the Exodus. It was their, quote, salvation experience where God brought them out of bondage and slavery and set them free. And God is saying here, don't remember the former things. Now, he's not saying there, forget your salvation, forget what I did for you. He's just saying, stop making that your focus. It's time to turn your focus from the past to the future. And so there's a word for us today. He said, behold, I will do a new thing. Now, 
they, they didn't handle that new thing too well. And, and as you study the history of the church of the Lord Jesus, we haven't handled new things too well either. You remember when, when the Messiah came, he had been prophesied that he was going to come. Isaiah said in Isaiah 7, 14, he'll be born of a virgin. Our scripture we read today, the government will be upon his shoulders. Isaiah 53 says he'll be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Uh, Psalm 22 talks about the crucifixion and how he would suffer. And then Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says he'll be born in Bethlehem. He had laid out a timeline for the coming of the Messiah. And so he's building anticipation. But when Jesus came, what happened? John 1 12, he came unto his own and his own lovingly embraced him. And is that what it said? That's not even in the Amplified Bible. <laughs> it says, when he came to his own, his own what church? Receive him not. You see, you see, the suffering servant was a new thing. This coming Messiah didn't fit their mold. This coming Messiah didn't fit their preconceived notion of what the Messiah would be like. And because he didn't fit their mold, they missed him. I, that's why I entitled my message, The Tragedy of Missing God's Best. They did. They missed the Savior when he came because they were looking for another kind of Savior. See, we haven't dealt too well. And you know who it was? Listen to me. Now, this is going to, this may make somebody mad. I hope it doesn't. But you know who led the banner against the Messiah? Religious folk. Religious folk. Church members. The Pharisees. By the way, who are those dudes? <laughs> we close the Old Testament, there's not a single Pharisee. We open the New Testament, there they are everywhere. Where'd they come from? I'll tell you where they came from. They came from a revival movement in the interbiblical period. You see, the Pharisees developed to bring Judaistic theology back to a word-centered theology, and, and they were bringing, if I can call their convention, they, can bring, they were bringing their convention back to conservative theology. You see, the Sadducees denied the resurrection. They denied the, 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 uh, the work of angels and the Spirit. And so the, the Pharisees, in opposition to the Sadducees, was bringing the theology back to conservatism. But do you know that that pendulum swung too far? And the very ones that fought for biblical orthodoxy fought the Messiah when he came. You see, we have to be careful that we don't let our preconceived notions of what God's work is going to look like and be like, that we don't, we don't miss the Messiah. Are you with me on that? Let me give you one more example. The early church. I mean, when the church started, everybody in it was a Jew. Everybody. Every new born-again believer at Pentecost was a Jew. The early church was filled with Jews. And a lot of folks just liked that. And they just assumed this is the way it's going to be forever. And we're going to be another branch 
of Judaism. We'll be called the church, but we'll just be another branch of Judaism. And then God just messed up their apple cart all to pieces. Gentiles like you and me started getting saved. (laughs) And that messed up everything. What are we going to do with these guys? Are we going to make them Jews? Are we going to have to, we're going to make the men be circumcised? Are we going to make them keep the Sabbath day? Are we going to make them keep the holy days? Are we going to make them keep, what, what are we going to do with them? And there was a panic in the church. And there, the assumption was that the church would continue its Jewishness. And their assumption was wrong. Amen. You see, God had to broaden their vision to see the world as God sees it. Well, that's, that's just a, a few examples. We could, we could give a lot more. Uh, we just don't have the best track record at dealing with new things. Uh, let me take a moment now and, and just talk about the distinguishing characteristic of God's new thing. Uh, the first thing I would say about the distinguishing characteristic of God's new thing is this. God's new thing doesn't mean he's changed his mind. Let me just pause there. Why in the world would omniscience ever change their mind? Why would anybody who knows everything from the beginning, in and out, including all alternatives, why would they ever change their mind? God has not changed his mind about sin or about anything else. So when we say God has a new thing, that doesn't mean that God has all of a sudden become soft on sin. Somehow, So many in this generation feel that God has changed his mind about sin, that adultery is no longer a sin, that sexual perversion is no longer a sin, that murder of children in the womb is no longer a sin, but a right. Ignoring church attendance and public worship is no longer a sin. That's our culture. The fact that God does a new thing doesn't mean that God has suddenly become soft on sin. Sin is still sin. Number two, he hasn't changed his mind about the exclusive nature of the gospel. Jesus Christ is still the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by him. The Lord God Almighty is not concerned about your truth and my truth, regardless of what Oprah says. God is concerned about His truth, the truth. And so anything new that God has done, any new thing, it it, it doesn't mean that God has changed His mind about sin. It doesn't mean that God has changed His mind about Jesus being the only way to heaven. The second thing, this new thing doesn't diminish or minimize what God has done in the past. Please hear that, Kirby. The children of Israel were not to forget that God had brought them out through the first exodus. 
But he did not want them to so focus on that experience that they forgot that he had a new exodus for them. God's new thing doesn't diminish one bit the good things, the wonderful things, the great things, the God-glorifying things that God has done in this church or any church. But we can't live there. Yesterday's manna will not do for today. It'll rot in your mouth. Here's a third characteristic. Well, it's really not another characteristic. It's just kind of of an explanation. What, what, what does this mean then? If it doesn't mean this and it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? Well, it means that God's people are exhorted not to live in the past. We can appreciate the past, honor the past, respect the past, applaud the past, but we cannot live in the past. All right? And here's the last thing I want to say. The potential results of God's new thing. Three things I want to say about God's new thing. I'll say them quickly. You listen quickly. Number one, God's new thing will stretch us. That's the operative word. (laughs) How many of you like to be stretched? (laughs) That's not fun, is it? It's kind of painful to be stretched, you know. I don't stretch well. (laughs) I've never been able to touch my toes. I don't know why, you know, without bending my knees. I just can't do it. And, uh, And I don't like to even try. But you know, God has a way of stretching us. And His new thing will normally stretch us. He will stretch us for greater vision. That's what I want to say to you. God's new thing will probably end up making you uncomfortable. Are you with me? You still with me? Now, so what I want to tell you that up front is don't, be, don't worry about that. We need to be uncomfortable. You see, uh, when we're at ease in Zion, we get complacent. And so God comes along and shakes us up and stretches us a little bit. And we say, ooh, that hurts. Yeah, it does, but it's for your good. So God's new thing will stretch us for greater vision. Scripture says where there is no vision, the people perish. Do you have a vision? And and here's what I'm praying. I'm praying that the man God sends you will be a man who will have a heart, who will have a vision of the glory of God and a vision of what God wants to do through him and through you together as the body of Christ here at Kirby Woods Baptist Church. It'll stretch you, but listen, you'll grow because of it. Grow not only spiritually, you'll grow in other ways. You see, vision Vision helps us to grow. Where there is no vision, people perish. Where there is no vision, people perish. I heard about a man from the Far East who came to America. And he was told when he came to America, he said, if you go to America and follow your rainbow, you'll find a pot of gold. Several years later, A friend ran into this man from the Far East and said, hey, how you doing? He said, man, you've been here now for several years. How how you doing here in America? He said, well, he said, I found my pot of gold. But he said, I lost my rainbow. You know, your rainbow is your vision. Some of you have lost your rainbow. 
you need to recapture it. If I could say one thing to you today, it's recapture your rainbow. It's that rainbow, that vision that will guide you to that spiritual pot of gold as you follow. So it will stretch us, stretch us. Number two, it will sober us. (laughs) That's what a new vision will do. It'll sober you. It'll sober you for deeper repentance. God opens, begins to open up his will, and we'll say, wow, Lord, I'm not capable. I, I, I'm, I, Lord, like, like Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am undone. You see, that's what he said when he saw the glory of God. When he began to get this vision of the glory of God, he said, Lord, I'm undone. And that's what vision always does. And so when God begins to work a new thing in our life, it sobers us. Uh, God's new thing is designed, by the way, to humble us and to stretch us. Uh, listen to this. It's, it's the book of Habakkuk, and, uh, verse, chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Let me just read it for you. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days parenthesis, a new thing. I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. (laughs) For behold, here's that new thing. I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. Wow, is that God's new thing? <laughs> Lord, I'd just soon keep the old thing. <laughs> That's going to be tough. Yeah. You see, God allows a new thing not only to stretch us, but sometimes to sober us to deeper repentance. You see, God is a whole lot more interested, as Dr. Rogers used to say, in making us holy than in making us happy. Now, when we get holy, we'll get happy. Amen? You show me a Christian that's holy, I'll show you a Christian that's happy. But you see, sometimes the path there will stretch us and sober us. Could it be that God is doing a new thing today in our nation by bringing judgment to us for the way we have ignored and mocked Him? Think of it. God chastening His people for wickedness. And how's he doing it? He's raising up an even more wicked nation to rebuke his own people. Can I, can I just say this by way of parentheses? In my humble opinion, which I highly regard, <laughs> our greatest enemy is not terrorist. If we're in rebellion against God, our greatest enemy is God himself. Whitfield was right, right on target when he preached his famous sermon, 
sinners in the hands of an angry God. I'd rather have a thousand like Isis opposing me than to have the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, holy, eternal, eminent, transcendent God opposing me. When we ignore and mock and reject His truth, the cornerstone of Jesus Christ the Savior becomes the crushing stone of Jesus Christ the Judge. That's why Matthew wrote, Fear not him that is able to destroy the body, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the body and soul in hell. Well, there's one more thing, and I'll land this plane. Not only will God's visions strengthen us, uh, uh, rather sober us and stretch us, but lastly, it will strengthen us. It will strengthen us for greater service. And that's what God's new thing wants to do, to strengthen us. Somebody said where God guides, He provides. When God gives a new vision, He also gives the resources to accomplish that vision. I have learned that resources, both people-wise and financial-wise, always flow toward vision. You see, wherever there's vision, people want to be there to be a part of it. Wherever there's vision, people want to support it. They want to support it. So resources and manpower flow toward vision. Well, Paul said, he that calleth you shall also perform it. Application. Your new vision may entail a new responsibility here at Kirby Woods Baptist Church. God may be saying, I want you to do this, and you say, I can't do that. Can I tell you this? God will never lead you where God's grace will not strengthen and provide for you. God will never ask you to do anything. He want to empower you to do. It may be that there's somebody you need to forgive. You say, I, I'm fresh out of forgiveness. <laughs> I'm, I, my tank is on empty. I understand. Can I tell you, God's tank is never on empty. And God can give you the grace to forgive. It may be that you need to ask someone else to forgive you. And you say, I just can't do that. Well, you may not be able to, but God's power working within you can. So, God's new thing is designed to stretch you, sober you, and strengthen you for the future. Hey, are you, are you willing for God to do a new thing in your life? You say, I don't know if I am. Well, let me ask you this. Are you willing to be made willing? 
Are you willing to say, Lord, I want that. I don't, I'm not at that place right now, but I want that. But please help me, guide me, help me to be there. The one word I would say to you in closing is this. Don't miss it. <laughs> God's new thing, don't miss it. You say, well, how can I be sure I don't miss it? That's really simple. Number one, you've got to know that you know him. Know that you're saved. Know that if you died today, you're going to heaven. If you don't have that question settled, you need to get it settled today. Know that you know him. Paul said, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Number two, if you're sure you know him, then abide in a close, loving fellowship with him. The best illustration of the Christian life I find in the New Testament is John 15, where Jesus said, if we abide in him and his word abides in us, we will ask whatever we desire and he will do it. Jesus said, I am the vine, you're the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same will bring forth much fruit. So we need to abide in him. If I want to know what his new thing for my life is, I need to draw up real close to him. Have you ever noticed in Scripture the one character in the New Testament that had the greatest insight about the death of Jesus? It wasn't Peter or Andrew or James or John or Philip or Bartholomew or Thomas or Matthew. None of those guys. They lived with him 24-7. They walked with him for three years. But, but, but they didn't have a clue. Jesus had just outright said to them on numerous occasions, I must go to Jerusalem. I must die. I must be buried. Three days later, I must rise from the dead. And they said, duh. They never saw it. But every time we see Mary, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus with her ears tuned to what he's saying. And on that last week, she comes in with that ointment, expensive ointment, and she pours it out on the feet of Jesus. And the disciples said, wait, what are you doing? You're wasting that. Jesus said, she's not wasting it. She's preparing me for my burial. You see, she got it. She got it. Jesus said, wherever this gospel is preached, you'll remember this act of extravagant, sacrificial love. Why? And he uses these exact words. Because, hear this now, she has done what she could. God's not asking you to do anything other than what you can with his power. Are you willing? Let's bow for prayer. Father, I pray that you would stir our heart about 
the new thing that you want to work in our lives. Lord, some of us have, we need to blow the dust off of our Christian life. We've just kind of settled in. We're in a rut, Lord. We're in a grave with both ends knocked out. We're in a rut. We hadn't had a new thing in 20 years. Lord, have mercy on us. We haven't grown in years. We're still the same. We've not made any advance in Christ-likeness. Father, have mercy on our souls. Lord, help us to be willing to be stretched, even though it's painful. Help us to be willing to be sobered in our understanding of our sinfulness and our need for repentance. And Lord, strengthen us to do whatever it is you're calling us to do. I pray for this precious church. I pray, Father, that you would do a new thing, a dynamic thing, a powerful thing, a thing that would have your your tracks all over it that people would have to say God's doing a work at Kirby Woods. It's not the work of man. It's not just the work of their new pastor. It's the work of God. Lord, I long to see that happen here. And I pray it will. Lord, if there's anyone in this room today or anyone listening that doesn't know you, they're not prepared to seek this new thing you want to do in their life. You, you tell us that you make all things new. And I, I pray, Father, that there would be someone today that might experience that, that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Lord, that would be the greatest new thing that could happen today to anybody. So I pray if there's anybody in this room or anybody listening, watching on TV that's not saved, Father, I pray today would be the day of their salvation. Lord, draw them to yourself by your Spirit. Help them even right now, Lord, to surrender their heart and will and mind, their whole soul to surrender to you as Lord of their life. Lord, help them to do it right now. Right now, right where they're seated, right where they're listening. God, help them to do it. If there's anyone in this room today that needs to be a part of Kirby Woods, their membership is somewhere else, but they're not active, and they need to get involved in the church, I pray this would be the day they would come and transfer their letter to this fellowship and be a part of this church and be a part of what you're going to do and the new thing you're going to do in the future. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing our hymn of invitation.